Hello and welcome to Medico Legal Expert Insight. My name is Jessica and in this podcast, we interview medical and legal professionals to help connect and understand when, what, why and how both sides interpret the information given to them. The goal is to share expert opinions from both sides of the medico-legal industry. I do want to say a huge thank you to eReports for the support and access to all these incredible experts. So let's get started and connect the dots through conversation. Today, I am joined by Tom Ballantyne, Principal Lawyer and Head of Morris Blackburn's Victorian Medical Law Practice. Tom and I are going to be discussing expert witnesses, communicating communicating with the lawyers and the court. Tom is going to share his insights into what he looks for in a medical negligence case, the legal framework behind communications, his opinion on draft reports, and some serious consequences from a communication error. But before we get into this very intriguing conversation, let me introduce Tom. As I mentioned, he is Principal Lawyer and Head of Morris Blackburn's Victorian Medical Law Practice. Tom joined the firm as a trainee lawyer in 2006 and has practiced exclusively in medical negligence since 2007. He is also on the Law Institute of Victoria Council and the Australian Lawyers Alliance Victorian Committee. Tom acts solely for plaintiffs. His skills include running complicated litigation across all areas of medical care, of healthcare, and has achieved significant results for clients, including settling cases involving catastrophic injuries and lifetime care needs. Tom represents families at coronal inquests, acting on behalf of those who have lost loved ones as a result of poor medical treatment. He's one of three Morris Blackburn lawyers listed by the prestigious Doyle's Guide as a leading lawyer in the field of medical law. Outside of medical litigation, Tom is also active in law reform, legal policy and advocacy, particularly with respect to the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Wow, Tom, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me tonight. Yeah, yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. So let's let's start with what are you actually looking for in a medical negligence case? Uh, well, look, the majority of our matters tend to involve um, system failures of, of one kind or another, rather than it being a uh, a black and white question of, of the particular doctor's competence. Um, you know, the vast majority of of doctors and nurses and medical practitioners are, do a fantastic job and are extraordinarily um, competent and good at what they do. But what we most often um, see happen is that, you know, so, somewhere along the line, the systems have failed the patient, uh, whether that's, you know, doctor working far too long a shift to be able to do, to do their job uh, safely, whether it's, um, you know, miscommunication, uh, uh, correspondence, not getting through or, or um, notes of previous attendances not being complete. Uh, you know, it's really those sort of structural issues that form the basis of, of most of the medical negligence litigation we find. Mm-hmm. And can can you share the, the legal framework behind 
communication between the expert and lawyers? Like, do you, is there do's and don'ts when it comes to these particular cases? Yeah. So, I mean, as you can imagine, when you're litigating in, you know, the medical field, uh, your experts are, are really essential. Um, at the end of the day, the court doesn't care what I think as a lawyer about what a neurosurgeon should do, and, and rightly so. Uh, nor do they care what our, our clients think about what happened and what went wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so we really rely heavily on our on our experts. And in that sense, it's a little bit different from uh, other areas of, of litigation, particularly other areas of personal injury litigation, where, you know, like what we call lay evidence, what someone saw uh, and what they witnessed, you know, can be a, a much more important part of the case. Mm-hmm. We're really, we really rely heavily on our medical experts to tell us what went wrong and, and whether it could have been avoided. Uh, so we, we communicate with experts a lot, as you can imagine, with brief experts a lot. And there are you know, a lot of real uh, pitfalls or, or risks in that process um, that, that people really, you know, really need to be aware of. And um, you know, a lot of our experts aren't aware of them, of course, because they're not lawyers. And so they do something that's entirely well-meaning, but might cause us difficulty from, from a legal perspective. Mm. Um, when we're talking about communicating with experts, what we're always, I guess, worried about is, um, is are we going to be obliged to hand over something, to discover something, um, evidence of our communications with experts, whether it's a teleconference, whether it's an email, um, that might cause us some concern down the track, that might be used to undermine the expert's opinion or undermine their independence, whatever it is. Um, so really, that's, that's what we're talking about. When, when do we think we might have to hand over uh, communication, uh, evidence of communication with, with experts beyond their, their written report? Um, and, and what risk does that pose to us? Um, so, you know, the, the starting point um, in, in terms of the legal framework is uh, the, the, you know, Premier County Court rules, um, particularly Order 44. Uh, that there's, you know, that, that obliges us to hand over um, any supplementary opinion um, provided by an expert uh, after we've served and relied on the original opinion. Um, now, you know, of course, if we get an expert opinion, the starting point is it's protected by a legal professional privilege until we serve it on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, but after we do that, we're obliged to serve any supplementary opinion provided by that expert under Order 44. Um, and I think the really key thing here is that it doesn't matter what form that's in, it's about the opinion. So the fact that you haven't got an expert to go into writing and actually do a supplementary written opinion doesn't really give you any protection. The, the notes of a subsequent telephone call can be considered a supplementary opinion. Yeah, okay. Um, and, you know, in, in, you, you're obliged under 44, under 44 under order 44 to, to serve that material. Yeah. Um, and this is just really in Victoria? Case. Yes, this is in Victoria, yeah. um, but it's, it's mirrored across the country. Um, uh, and in fact, you know, some, some um, jurisdictions have even stricter rules. You know, in, in, in Queensland, for example, you're obliged to serve all your expert opinions, whether you want to rely on them or not. Mm. Um, but for the Victorians out there, there's a really good decision which sets out the law in this area uh, called Peer Reading, the Monash Health, um, and the citation 2017 BSC 342. 
if you really want to get a, a good background about when you might be forced to hand over all this sort of extraneous material you've got sitting behind a written expert report, it's, it's the best place to go. Yeah. Um, and look, basically, the principle you've got to take away from it is uh, that if you speak to your expert and they express additional opinions or uh, a different opinion to the one in the first written report, you're probably obliged to serve it. You're probably going to have to hand it over. Um, there are some uh, other circumstances too, not just Order 44. Uh, under the Evidence Act, um, the court can say that uh, your legal professional privilege has been waived by your actions. Um, that can happen because you know what you're doing is inconsistent with maintaining um, privilege over these other documents, over the communications with the experts. So, you know, it's obviously unfair for you to say, well, here's the expert opinion, um, but we don't think you should get access to this other correspondence with the expert in which we gave them additional information about the case. You know, those two things are inconsistent. So the yeah. court will force you to hand over those communications there. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and, you know, in, in other cases, they can say that the privilege has been waived because all of your other expert um, communications with the expert are required to give context to their written report, to understand their written report. Again, if you emailed an expert and said, uh, well, can you please add this to your brief? Can you consider this further information from our client? It's quite reasonable for the other side to say, well, we need that to understand the basis on which this written opinion has been provided. Yeah. Um, so the bottom line is all of this stuff, your emails, your phone calls, all of those sorts of things can be, uh, you can be forced to hand them over and you want to make sure that they're consistent with your case, they don't undermine the expert's credibility and they don't undermine your own ethical obligations. Yeah, wow. So yeah, pretty much anytime you engage an expert, that's something that they need to think about as well. Everything, any conversation, any uh, emails, and obviously the reports, um, the the other side and the courts are going to discover. Yeah. And I think the risk is you get a bit casual at times, particularly if you're doing it, you've got a sort of high volume uh, practice, you're engaging a lot of experts, it's easy to email them, it's easy to pick up the phone and call them. Um, but, you know, I, I think more casual those interactions become, the greater the risk. Um, you know, you might just pick up the phone and, and, and ring an expert and ask them a question offhand about their report. Maybe they haven't thought about this case for a while. Maybe they can't quite remember the context. And then maybe they say something that's not particularly informed or considered, um, just off the cuff. But you've got to write that down. And you might mm-hmm. have to provide it later. So um, we always encourage people to be very considered in the way they, they communicate with experts for that reason. Yeah. So on that, what is your opinion on phone conversations with experts? Yeah. So, I mean, they're a very useful um, tool because, you know, particularly dealing with um, technical medical content, um, if we get a report and it needs clarification or we want to ask further questions, you know, writing a letter saying, well, can you now please answer this? might not get you what you need and it might lead to sort of ongoing written communication that's not particularly effective or useful. So, so being able to pick up the phone and talk to them is, is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's fine, you know, we, we do that all the time. But it, 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 it's how you approach that process. It's, it's, as I say, not sort of just doing it casually or, or haphazardly, um, setting up a time where the expert knows you're calling to talk about 
expect opinion, um, making sure that you're going into it prepared, knowing what you want to ask, knowing the issues you want to cover. Yeah. Um, and then making sure that what's captured um, in the notes is really the expert's um, uh, opinion. And, you know, a, a good tip um, that I was given was if you are having a substantive conversation with the expert and they provide further evidence, they, they, they um, might give additional opinions or change their opinion, whatever it is, we often, um, uh, well, almost always, will send draft notes of conference to the expert and ask them to review and change them to make sure they do reflect their opinion um, and, and, and get them to sign them. And then there's just complete transparency about the process and what the expert's opinion actually is. Yeah. Is there anything that you, when you do set up the initial phone conversation or a phone conversation with the expert, are they very aware that, you know, this this information that you're going to be having on this conversation can be discovered? Is there anything that you uh, say to them when, you know, you are on the phone conversation with them? Um, look, we always brief our experts with the expert witness code of conduct that the various courts have yep. um, and, and remind them of their obligations under that. Um, we, we obviously don't want the experts to be sort of limiting their opinion. I mean, at the end of the day, their opinion is their opinion. Um, their opinion is to the court, not for the plaintiff or the defendant. Uh, and so we don't sort of want to put them under pressure or, or make them worried about expressing their opinion. Um, but it is important to remind them of their obligations and, and, yeah, and to remind them that, you know, all of this will form part of their evidence. Yeah. And what's your opinion on draft reports? Yeah, it's a, it's a controversial uh, issue. And I think my opinion is that they're, they're pretty risky to get involved in. Mm. Um, but certainly um, people, people do. And, and I don't think it's black and white that, um, you shouldn't be uh, using them. Um, I mean, certainly there are aspects of a, uh, you know, of using draft reports and, and what, you know, I guess what we're talking about here is the lawyer getting one, reviewing it and providing feedback to the expert. Um, you know, there's certainly no issue with uh, a lawyer telling an expert that certain aspects of the opinion just aren't, aren't relevant to the case and don't need to be included. Yeah. Um, or that, um, you know, they might have missed particular issues that they've been asked to comment on or, or whatever it is, you know. So there, I guess, we're talking about feedback that goes to the form and making sure it's in a, a form that's um, relevant and, and suitable for litigation. Where it gets a bit greyer, I guess, and a bit more controversial is when you start talking about uh, feedback that goes to the substance of the actual opinion. So we might be um, testing an unfavourable opinion, um, uh, and start, you know, and asking the expert to really think about it and, and provide a basis for the unfavourable opinion, um, or uh, you know, point or, or, or raising particular propositions. You know, will you say this, but have you considered this, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, I think that that's very risky, yeah. uh, and I think it, it's pretty borderline. Um, when it comes to your ethical obligations. But as I say, it's by no means black and white um, and, and the devil is in the detail with, with all of these things. Um, I, I think I think the practical issue, though, is that if the issue of a draft report comes to life in front of the court, um, how do you 
show what you did? How, how do you prove that what you did was uh, ethical? How do you where, where where's the evidence that the feedback you gave um, didn't cross the line? Didn't didn't turn into the sort of um, unethical coaching that that might occur occasionally. Yeah, if that's a more practical consideration, how are you going to prove to the court that you haven't done something wrong or unethical? Uh, and, and that's why I think it's very risky because it might be very difficult to, to establish that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, my, my uh, response usually when I get a, an unsolicited draft report, because obviously, I mean, from time to time, an expert will just send one having not been asked to provide a draft report. Uh, in those circumstances, I just reply saying, thanks for the report, look forward to your final one um, in, in due course. Um, and then it's on paper that there's not been any feedback or, or influence, um, you know, on the final report. Yeah. So if I was a medical expert listening to this podcast today, would you advise that just send through the final report, don't send draft reports? Yeah, look, my... my um, my opinion and, and certainly the opinion of, of people in my team would be don't send a draft report unless one's been asked for, uh, I guess, is, is uh, the advice. Yeah, okay. And when it comes to um, communications between the expert and legal professional, have you have you seen or do you have any examples of good, really good communication, really poor and bad communication and maybe even some really – you know, something that has completely gone pear-shaped? Uh, yeah, so um, starting with, with mistakes that lawyers made, um, there's a, a recent decision in the Victorian County Court of uh, Fisher and Brown, so, and so Patrick Fisher with F-I-S-C-H-E-R, V. Brown, um, 2021, VCC 104. Mm-hmm. So w- what happened here is that um, uh, an expert was briefed um, amount of detail with respect to what the defendant says happened, the defendant's actual instructions, and that went into the letter, our client instructs that X, Y, Z. Um, and the judge, uh, well, sorry, the plaintiff made an application um, for discovery of all of um, the, the material that went into that report and generated those instructions. So quite literally, we're talking about the record of interview between a lawyer and their client which ordinarily would be, you know, entirely protected by legal professional privilege. Mm. Um, The judge in that matter said because the lawyer had put so much detail into the briefing letter about what their client was saying, about what their client's instructions were, um, the the lawyer actually had to provide all that material um, to to the other side, which, you know, could contain all sorts of um, uh, evidence or information that could be detrimental to the claim um, and certainly it wouldn't have been intentional um, so that's that's something that's a bit frightening for all of us it's a very recent matter and has um, set the cat amongst the pigeons uh, somewhat um, yeah. in, in our area um, so that's probably an example of um, you know what to avoid doing uh, although in fairness um, it's not something that a lot of us probably had turned our mind to before this decision yeah um, but in terms of, uh, you know, um, poor communication on behalf of uh, the experts, well, um, you know, again, we're talking about draft opinions, we're talking about um, seeking feedback, uh, and we're talking about experts who are, I guess, appear too willing to change their opinion. 
Um, you know, at the end of the day, we're not trying to invent cases that don't exist. And, um, you know, if, if we are conducting a, um, uh, a, uh, you know, a supplementary, we're asking for a supplementary report or having a conversation after the report, um, you know, we want to test the expert's opinion. But the last thing we need is um, the expert, you know, trying to make something up for us um, because it's just, you know, too, too, it's just in no one's interest for that, for that to occur. So uh, what we want from the expert is, um, you know, a clearly formulated opinion, um, one that demonstrates the sort of path of reasoning is mm. what we talk about. So how did you get to that? opinion what are all the factors that went into it that, that led you to that conclusion if you're relying on um, medical research what is it how does it justify your opinion and have that all clearly set up uh, and set out sorry in the report one of the biggest mistakes we see on the expert side is just to state the conclusion without there being any explanation of how you reached it um, and of course it might be straightforward for the expert who is a uh, an expert in their field um, not so straightforward for a poor old medical negligence lawyer trying to understand <laughs> cardiac surgery. Yeah. So this is actually um, a good sort of extra question that I might ask. When you are briefing your experts, because you would be coming across so many different matters that maybe you've never worked on before and you have to get opinions from experts that maybe you've never even heard of before because there's so many different medical expertise out there how do you work out who the best medical expert opinion is based on the case that comes to you mm. um yeah that's that's a good question and, and certainly one that's pretty difficult for plaintiff lawyers because you know at the end of the day um you can imagine it's not that easy necessarily to get experts who are willing to, to criticize other professionals when, 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 you know, when it's warranted. Um, I mean, the starting point, um, legally is that, you know, only an expert of the same field can criticize, you know, a, a medical practitioner. So, um, an obstetrician doesn't get to tell us what a midwife should have done. We need a midwife to, to comment. Um, yeah, of course. You know, uh, uh, uh the, the subsequent, consultant neurologist who sees a patient doesn't get to talk about what the GP downstream could have done. It needs to be another GP. So when we're talking about the issue of the actual treatment, the breach of duty of care, the negligence question, mm. um, it needs to be someone of the same field. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to be someone of the same experience though. Um, so it's very, it, it's settled law that um, a lack of experience is not doesn't alter the standard of care if you're standing there saying, I'm a doctor, I'm providing this medical treatment. The fact that you're a, a registrar doesn't mean that the patient can expect a lower standard of care. Um, but equally, um, you know, if it's a professor providing an opinion, uh, they really have to think about what is the, the standard practice, not the, you know, 1% best in the business practice. Um, we talk about the, the experts falling into the trap of expecting a standard of perfection when actually what the law requires is for medical professionals to act reasonably. Mm. Um, so it's really about getting the right, um, the right uh, field. Um, and after that, it really just needs to be someone with significant experience.
experience and sufficient experience to be able to convince a court or, or tell a court what standard practice is or what the accepted practice is. Yeah. So if you do engage a, an expert that hasn't addressed liability before, what should they be considering? Uh, yes. So um, if it's your first report, I, I guess the, the main piece of advice I would give an expert is this issue of demonstrating the path of reasoning that I mentioned. So mm. actually setting out the facts that you're relying on to reach a conclusion, um, the other you know, the, 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 the other factors that you might be relying on uh, to, to reach a certain conclusion and actually taking the lawyer and, and ultimately the court on the ride with you, stepping them through um, your thought process, which then leads to the, to the conclusion. Um, the, other, the other thing I would say, and it's something that comes up quite a lot, is if you're going to rely on external evidence, whether that's, you know, guidelines or whether that's medical research, um, you, you really need to ensure that it's, it's relevant, um, that it says what you're saying it does. And, and I can assure you, we read everything that's referenced in these reports. Mm. Um, we don't just sort of uh, assume that it's, it's right. Um, and our opponents read everything that's referenced in the report to make sure it does support the contention. Um, so, uh, you know, it's really good to have that stuff because I think it adds weight to the opinion, but it also needs to be relevant and, and you know, um, accurate. Yeah, okay. So can you give us an example of or have you seen some serious consequences from a communication error within these cases or even an example of some really clear communication? Yeah, um, I mean, look, it's easier to talk about the ones that go wrong because they're the ones that often get in front of the court. Um, if you've got really good communication, it's hardly going to be the subject of a of, of judicial con consideration. Um, it, look, there's a very famous or probably infamous is the right word, uh, case in, in Victoria called Hudsworth uh, v Scholastic Cleaning and Consultancy Services Proprietary Limited. Um, this was ruling number eight in the citation 2014 VSC 567. Uh, so this case involved, um, uh, well, maybe not draft reports, but versions of reports where um, the expert engaged in a work cover, work injury matter, had provided a report. Um, there then, through you know, a series of uh, events that I won't, I won't go through, led ultimately was a second report um, of the, sorry, a second version of the same report with different assumptions. Uh, then there was a third version of the report after um, oh, the wow. barrister had been speaking to the expert. Um, and, you know, I, I, it, it's easy to see how you sort of, go down this path and, and, and it doesn't appear to be particularly problematic because no one's you know, going in with the overt um, idea to be unethical or to change the opinion or whatever. But it just sort of snowballed, it seems. And you know, ultimately, this all came out in court, um, that there were these different versions of the, um, of the report. They hadn't all been served on the other side. Uh, they weren't all being relied on um, you know, in, in, in the proceedings. Um, and, and look, and ultimately there was disciplinary action taken against that, that barrister and the solicitor involved, I think. Mm. Um, uh, certainly the barrister from my recollection. Um, you know, so it's, it's really important to remember that these, these actions aren't taken in a vacuum. Um, 
we have ethical obligations as lawyers. We have to act honestly and appropriately. And, you know, the Civil Procedure Act provides clear guidance on, on these issues. And, you know, ultimately you can get caught up in, in the um, pace of practice and uh, not realise that you've strayed into sort of uncertain territory. But at the end of the day, your practicing certificate is at stake. Um, and the court's not going to have any sympathy if they believe that there's been uh, unethical practice or, or um, certainly, you know, unreasonable practice, and, and you can't actually prove that what you did was, was reasonable. Um, so, I mean, the big thing for us is always the transparency in the communication. We never say or write anything that we're not willing, you know, to have the other side see ultimately. Mm. And do you have an example of some really clear communication, something that, you know, everything has just gone smoothly in terms of the report you've received, just one report, then, like, do you have an example? Um, I mean, look, it, it's hard to sort of pick out a, a particular example because, as I say, that you know, they, they rarely see the light of day when it's working uh, well. But, um, look, in terms of, of the, the factors, uh, that go into clear communication from the lawyer from the lawyer's side. Um, you know, I really think you need to know your case and know your evidence. So um, that means reading and digesting all of the medical evidence. Um, you know, developing a chronology that can guide the expert to the various parts of the brief, mm. um, and actually thinking about what you want the expert to answer and consider. And that doesn't have to be uh, a sort of you know complete list you can always ask an expert to comment on anything else that they think is relevant um but you know i I, i've seen lawyers fall into the trap of basically sending a bundle of documents to an expert and kind of saying what do you reckon um that's that's pretty poor communication that's not going to help your client and it's not going to get you the answer answers you need or unlikely to get you the answers you need and i would Um, imagine there could be thousands of medical records that the expert may have to read and sit through and make sure they obviously read everything. Yeah, thousands of pages. And, you know, they probably need to read it anyway, but giving them the guide, giving them the summary to, to sort of, or the chronology so they can structure their reading, uh, mm. I think is really helpful. Um, on the expert side, uh, you know, it, 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 it's demonstrating that path of reasoning, providing the basis for your conclusion or, or the evidence for your conclusion. Um, it's explaining to the court um, what what you're talking about. So, I mean, I, you know, I'm not suggesting that experts shouldn't use technical information. I, I just think by the nature of being an expert, um, you need to at some point use technical, uh, uh, technical um, jargon or technical language. Um, but it's not sort of just relying on it as a crutch. You know, it's, it's actually explaining to lay people, being a lawyer or a judge, uh, what you're talking about, um, you know, why you've reached a certain conclusion, what is invo- for example, what is involved in a, in a particular procedure. We often people often get these reports that just say this is the procedure, and we have to go away, kind of sort of research in, in medical text what that procedure is. If it's relevant to your opinion, just a brief explanation as to you know what it is, what's involved with it, what the doctor's doing uh, in that moment. Um, all of those sorts of things, you know, as I say, bring the lawyer and the court along with you um, and they really add to the credibility and the weight of the opinion that's given. Um, you know, if you've got one opinion that just states a number of conclusions, 
uh, versus one that had all of that reasoning in there, all of that background. Um, the first one might be right still, but I can tell you the second one is immediately going to um, seem uh, more credible, um, more convincing, I, I guess, and, and that's what we want. Yeah, definitely. Well, this has been very insightful, Tom. I really appreciate your insights today. I'm sure our listeners are going to get a huge amount from it. Um, But yeah, thank you so much for joining me. No, pleasure. Have a lovely evening. Thanks. Thanks, Tom. Bye.